I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning. Good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, your weekly dose of fantasy right here on your computer. Here we go with show number five. I'm Nicholas eaton Clark, your host. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We have some interesting things to share with you today. We have a story called An Accounting by Brian Evanson and a Scottish story called Snowball's Chance by Charles Stross. Our first story an accounting by Brian Evanson. It's a delightful tale, really makes me smile. Brian is the author of 12 books of fiction, most recently the novel Immobility and the story collection Windeye. He lives and works in Providence, Rhode Island, and if you click over to the Triple F website, you can have a look at his awards and maybe even click over to his site. There's a new story collection called A Collapse of Horses, which is scheduled to appear in 2015. It's read for you by Sam Walter. Sam travels across the US looking for the finest barbecue. When he's not doing this, he learns about the latest and greatest in the world of craft beer. He hosts a podcast which focuses on college sports, mainly college football, and he lives in Chicago with his wife and an adorable cat. So, without any further ado, here is An Accounting by Brian Evanson. An Accounting by Brian Evanson I have been ordered to write an honest accounting of how I became a Midwestern Jesus and the subsequent disastrous events thereby accruing, events for which, I am willing to admit, I am at least partly to blame. I know of no simpler way than to simply begin. In August, it was determined that our stores were depleted and not likely to outlast a winter. One of our number was to travel east and beg further provision from our compatriots on the coast, Another was to move further inland, hold converse with the Midwestern sects as he encountered them, bartering for supplies as he could. Lots were drawn, and this latter role fell to me. I was provided a dog and dog cart, a knife, a revolver with twelve rounds, rations, food for the dog, a flint and steel, and a rucksack stuffed with objects for trade. I named the dog Finger, for reasons obscure even to myself. I received as well a small packet of our currency, though it was suspected that, since the rupture, our currency, with its Masonic imagery, would be considered by the pious Midwesterners anathema. It was not known if I would be met with hostility, but this was considered not unlikely, considering no recent adventurer into the territory had returned. I was given as well some hasty training by a former Midwesterner turned heretic named Barton. According to him, I was to make frequent reference to God, 
though not to use the word goddamn, as in the phrase, where are my goddamn eggs? What eggs are these? I asked Barton, only to discover that the eggs themselves were apparently of no consequence. He ticked off a list of other words considered profane and to be avoided. I was told to frequently describe things as God's will. There, but for the grace of God go I, was also an acceptable phrase, as was, praise God. Things were not to be called God-awful, though I was allowed to use, rarely and with care, the phrase, God's awful grace. If someone were to ask me if I were saved, I was to claim that yes, indeed, I was saved, and that I had accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I made notes of all these locutions, silently vowing to memorize them along the route. Another thing, said Barton, if in dire straits, you should Jesus them and claim revelation from God. So as you see, it was not I myself who produced the idea of Jesusing them, but Barton. Am I to be blamed if I interpreted the verb in a way other than he intended? Perhaps he is to blame for his insufficiencies as an instructor. But I am outstripping myself. Each story must be told in some order. And mine, having begun at the beginning, has no reason not to take each bit and piece according to its proper chronology, so as to let each reader of this accounting arrive at his own conclusions. I was driven a certain way, on the bed of an old carrier converted now to steam power. The roads directly surrounding our encampment, what had been my former city in better days, were passable, having been repaired in the years following the rupture. After a few dozen miles, however, the going became more difficult. The carrier forced at times to edge its way forward through the underbrush to avoid a collapse or an eruption of the road. Nevertheless, I had an excellent driver, Marchant, and we had nearly broached the border of the former Pennsylvania before we encountered a portion of the road so destroyed by a large mortar or some other engine of such devastation that we could discover no way around. Marchant, one of the finest, blamed himself, though to my mind there was no blame to be taken. I was unloaded. Marchant and his thirty-second baits carried Finger and his dog cart through the trees to deposit them on the far side of the crater. I myself simply scrambled down hand over foot, and then scrambled up the other side. To this point, my journey could not be called irregular. Indeed, it was nothing but routine, with little interest. As I stood on the far side of the crater, watching Marchant and his second depart in the carrier, I found myself almost relishing the adventure that lay before me. This was before the days I spent trudging alone down a broken and mangled road through a pale rain. This was before I found myself sometimes delayed for half a day, trying to figure out how to get dog and dog cart around an obstacle. They had provided me with a simple harness for the dog, but had foreseen nothing by the way of rope to tether or secure the fellow. If I tried to skirt, say, a shell crater, while carrying the bulky dog cart, Finger, feeling himself on the edge of abandonment, was anxious to accompany me. He would be there, darting between my legs and nearly stumbling me into the abyss itself, and if I did not fall, he did, so that once I'd crossed, I had to figure some way of extricating him. Often, I had shouted him the command, Finger, heel, or the command, Finger, sit. But it was soon clear that I, despite pursuing the more dangerous of the two missions, had been dispersed the less adequate canine. Nevertheless, I grew to love Finger, and it was for this I was sorry and even wept when later I had to eat him. But I fear I have let my digression on Finger, which, in honesty, began not as a digression, but as a simple description of a traveler's difficulty to get the better of my narrative. Imagine me, then attempting now to carry Finger around a gap in the road in the dog cart itself, with Finger awaiting his moment to escape by clawing his way up my chest and onto my head, and myself shouting, Finger, stay, in my most authoritative tone, as I feel the ground beginning to slide out from under my feet. Or imagine Finger and me crammed into the dog cart together, the hound clawing my hands to ribbons as we rattle down the slope, not knowing what obstacle we shall encounter at the bottom. That should render sufficient picture of the travails of my journey as regards Finger, and the reason as well, after splicing the harness and refashioning it as a short leash for Finger, for abandoning the dog cart, the which, I am willing to admit, as communal property, I had no right to forsake. Needless to say, the journey was longer than our experts had predicted. I was uncertain if I'd crossed into the Midwest, and, in any case, had seen no signs of inhabitants or habitation. The weather had begun to turn cold, and I was racked with fits of ague. My provisions, being insufficiently calculated, had run low. The resourceful finger managed to provide for himself by sniffling out and devouring dead creatures when he was released from his makeshift leash, though he was at least prone to simply roll in said creature and return to me stinking and panting. I myself tried to eat one of these, 
scraping it up and roasting it first on a spit, but the pain that subsequently assaulted my bowels made me prefer to eat instead what remained of Finger's dog food, and thereafter to go hungry. I had begun to despair when the landscape suffered through a transformation in character, and I became convinced that I had entered Midwest at last. The ground sloped ever downward, leveling into a flat and gray expanse. The trees gave way to scrub and brush and a strange crippled grass, which, if one was not careful, cut one quite badly. Whereas the mountains and hills had at least occasional berries or fruit to forage, here the vegetation was not such as to bear fruit. Whereas before one had only seen the occasional crater, here the road seemed to have been systematically uprooted so that almost no trace of it remained. I saw as well in the distance, as I had left the slopes for the flat expanse, a devastated city, now little more than a smear on the landscape. Yet, I reasoned, perhaps this city, like my own city, had become a site for encampment. Surely there was someone to be found therein, or at least nearby. Our progress over this prairie was much more rapid, and Finger did manage to scare up a hare, which, in its confusion, made a run at me and was shot dead with one of my twelve bullets, the noise of its demise echoing forth like an envoy. I made a fire from scrub brush and roasted the hare over it. I had been long without food, and though the creature was stringy and had taken on the stink of the scrub, it was no less a feast for that. It was this fire that made my presence known, the white smoke rising high through the daylight like a beacon. In retrospect, cooking the rabbit can be considered a tactical error, but you must recall that it had been several days since I'd eaten, and I was perhaps in a state of confusion. In any case, long before I had consumed this hair to its end, Finger made a mournful noise and his hackles arose. I captured from the corner of an eye a movement through the grass, the which I had divined to be human. I rose to my feet, wrapping Finger's leash around one hand. With the other, I lifted my revolver from beside him and cocked it. I hallooed the man, and brandishing my revolver, encouraged him to come forth of his own accord. Else, I claimed, I would send my dog into the brush to flush him, and then I would shoot him dead. Finger, too, entered wonderfully into the spirit of the thing, though I knew he would not harm anybody but only sniff them, and were they already dead, roll in their remains. There was no response for a long moment, and then a fellow arose like a ghost from the quaking grass and tottered out, as did his companions. There were perhaps a dozen of them, a pitiful crew, each largely unclothed and unkempt, their skin discolored and lesioned as well. They were thin, arms and legs just slightly more than pale sticks, bellies swollen with hunger. "'Who is your leader?' I asked the man who had come first. "'God is our leader,' the fellow claimed. "'Praise God,' I said. "'God's will be done. The Lord be praised,' rattling off their phrases as if I had been giving utterance to them all my life. "'But who is your leader in this world?' They looked at one another dumbly, as if my question lay beyond comprehension. It was quickly determined that they had no leader, but were waiting for a sign, were waiting God to inform them as how to proceed. I am that sign, I told them, thinking such authority might help better affect my purposes. There was a certain pleased rumbling at this. I have come to beg you for provisions. But food they claimed not to have, and by testimony of their own sorry condition, I was apt to believe them. Indeed, they were hungrily eyeing the sorry remains of my hair. I gestured to it with my revolver. I would invite you to share my humble meal, I said, and at those words one of them stumbled forward and took up the spit. It was only by my leveling the revolver at each of them in turn as he ate that each was assured a share of the little that remained. Indeed, by force of the revolver alone was established what they later referred to as the miracle of the everlasting hair, where it was said, the food was allowed to pass from hand to hand, and there remained enough for all. If this be in fact a miracle, it is attributable not to me, but to the revolver. It would have been better to designate said revolver as their messiah instead of myself. Perhaps you will argue that, though this be true, without my hand to hold said weapon, it could not have become a Jesus. That both of us together did a Jesus make, and I must admit that such an argument is hard to counter. Though if I were a Jesus or a portion of a Jesus, I was an unwitting one at this stage, and must plead for understanding. When the hair was consumed, I allowed Finger what remained of the bones. The fellows whom I had fed squatted around the fire, and asked me if I had else to provide them by way of nourishment. I confessed that I had not. We understand, one of them said, from your teachings, that mankind cannot live by bread alone, but must not mankind have bread to live? My teachings, I said? I was not familiar at that time with the verse 
was unsure what this rustic seer intended by attributing the statement to me. You are that sign, he said. You have said so yourself. Would you believe that I was unfamiliar enough at that moment with the teachings of the Holy Bible so as not to understand the mistake being made? I was like a gentleman in a foreign country, reader, armed with just enough of the language to promote serious misunderstanding, so that when I stated in return, I am that sign, and heard the rumble of approval around me, I thought merely that I was returning a formula, a manner of speech devoid of content. Realizing that, because of the lateness of the season, I might well have to remain in the Midwest through the worst of winter, I concluded that it was in my best interest to be on good terms with those likely to be of use to me. Indeed, it was not until perhaps a week later, as their discourse and their continued demands for further light and knowledge became more specific, that I realized that by saying, I am that sign, I was saying to them, I am your Jesus. By that time, even had I effected a denial of my Jesushood, it would not have been believed, would have been seen merely as a paradoxical sort of teaching, a parable. But I digress. Suffice to say that I had become their Jesus by ignorance and remained in that ignorance for some time, and remain to some extent puzzled even today by the society I have unwittingly created. Would I have returned from the Midwest if I were in accord with them? True. It may be argued that I did not return on my own. Yet when I was captured, it is beyond dispute. I was on the road towards my original encampment. I had no other purpose or intention but to report to my superiors. What other purpose could have brought me back? In those first days, I stayed encamped on that crippled, pestilent prairie, surrounded by a group of Midwesterners who would not leave me and who posed increasingly esoteric questions. Did I come bearing an olive branch or a sword? Neither, in fact, but a revolver. What money changers would I overturn in this epoch? But currency is of no use here, I protested. What was the state of an unborn child? Dead, I suggested, before realizing that by unborn they did not mean stillborn, but by then it was too late to retrace my steps. They refused to leave my side, seemed starved to talk to someone like myself, perhaps, I reasoned, the novelty of a foreigner. They were already mythologizing the miracle of the everlasting hair, which I told them they were making too much of. Were it truly everlasting, the hair would still be here, and we would commence to eat it over again. They looked thoughtful at this. There was, they felt, some lesson to be had in my words. The day following the partaking of the hare, serious questions began to develop as to what we would eat next. I set snares and taught the others to do the same, but it seemed that the hare had been an anomaly, and the snares remained unsprung. It was clear that the others expected me to feed them, as if by sharing my hair with them, I had entered into an obligation to provide for them. I tried at times to shoo them away from me, and even pointed the revolver once or twice, but though I could drive them off a little distance, they were never out of sight and would soon return. But I am neglecting finger. The men sat next to me, or, if I were walking, dogged my footsteps. I found my hunger filling my mind with the darkness, and had no desire so strong as to abandon their company immediately. Soon they began to beseech me in plaintive tones, using phrases such as these. Master, call manna down from heaven. Master, strike that rock with your stave. I had no stave, and cause a fountain to spring forth. Master, transfigure our bodies so they have no need of food, but are nourished on the word alone. Being a heretic, I did not grasp the antecedent of this harangue, i.e. my Jesushood, but only its broader sense. Soon they were all crying out, and I, already maddened from hunger, did not know how to proceed. A fever overcame me. Perhaps I thought I could slip away from them, but no, it was clear they thought they belonged with me, would not let me go. If I was to rid myself of them, there seemed no choice but to kill them. It was here that my eyes fell upon Finger, he who had shared in my travails for many days, the cause of both much frustration and much joy. Here, I thought, is the inevitable first step, though I wept to think this. Divining no other choice, I drew my revolver and shot Finger through the head, then flensed him and trussed him and broiled him over the flames. He tasted, I must reluctantly admit, not unlike chicken. Poor finger, I told myself. Perhaps we shall meet in a better world. The response to this act was to declare I had not come with an olive branch, but with a sword, and to use the phrase, he smiteth, a phrase which haunts me to this day. It is by little sinful steps that grander evils come to pass. I am sorry to say that finger was only a temporary solution, quickly consumed. I had hoped that, once sated, they would allow me to depart in peace. 
but they seemed bound to me more than ever now, and even offered me tributes, strange woven creations of no use nor any mimetic value, which they assembled from the tortured grass, crippled and faceless half-creatures that came apart in my hands. I thought and pondered and saw no way out but to sneak away from them at night. At first, I thought to have effected an escape. Yet before I was even a hundred yards from the campsite, one of them had raised a hue and cry, and they were all there with me, begging me not to go. I must go, I claimed. Others await me. Then we shall accompany you, they said. I must go alone. This they would not accept. I cannot stop them from coming with me, I thought, but at least I may move them in the proper direction to facilitate my eventual return to my camp. And in any case, I thought, if we are to survive, we must leave this accursed plain where nothing grows but dust and scrub and misery. We must gain the hills. So gain the hills we did. My plan was to instruct them in self-sufficiency, and how to trap their own prey, and how to grow their own foodstuffs, how to scavenge and forage, and make do with what was at hand, and thereby avoid starvation. This done, I hoped to persuade them to allow me to depart. We had arrived in the hills too late for crops, and animals and matter for foraging had grown scarce as well. We employed our first days gleaning what little food we could, gathering firewood and making for ourselves shelter prone to withstand the winter. But by the time winter set in with earnestness, we discovered our food all but gone, and our straits dire indeed. I, as their Jesus, was looked to for a solution. We have reached that unfortunate chapter which I assume to be the reason for my having been asked to compose this accounting. Might I say, before I begin, that I regret everything, but that at the time... I felt there to be no better choice. Were my inquest, assuming there is to be an inquest, to take place before a group of starved men, I might at least accrue some sympathy. But to the well-fed, necessity must surely appear barbarity. And now, again well-fed myself, I regret everything. Would I do it again? Of course not, unless I were very hungry indeed. In the midst of our suffering, I explained to them that one of us must sacrifice himself for the others. I explained how I as I had not yet finished my work, was unable to serve. To this they nodded sagely. And which of you, I asked, dare sacrifice himself, by so doing to become a type and shadow of your Jesus? There was among them one willing to step forward, and he was instantly shot dead. He smiteth, I could hear the men mumbling. What followed? Reader, we ate him. By winter's end we had consumed two of his fellows, each of whom stepped forward unprotesting, each is my apostle, honored to become a type and shadow of his Jesus, by a sacrifice of his own. Their bones we cracked open to suck the marrow, but the skulls of all three we preserved and enshrined out of respect for their sacrifice, all with the skull of finger, which I had preserved and continued to carry with me to this day. Early in spring I urged them farther and into the hills until we had discovered a small valley whose soil seemed fertile and promising. In a cave we discovered an unrefined salt, I taught them how to fish, and how as well to smoke their fish to preserve it, and they described this as becoming fishers of men, though to my mind they were more properly described as fishers of fish. We again set snares along game trails and left them undisturbed, and this time caught rabbits and birds, and sometimes a squirrel, and this meat we ate, or smoked and preserved as well. The hides they learned to strip and tan, and they bound them about their feet. I taught them as well how to cultivate those plants, as were available to them, and to make them fruitful. When they realized it was my will that they fend for themselves, they were quick to learn, and thus we were not long into summer when I called them together to inform them of my departure. At first they would not hear of this, and could not understand why their Jesus would leave them. Other sheep I have, I told them, that are not of this fold. Having spent the winter in converse with them, and reading an old tattered copy of their Bible, I had become conversant in the matters of faith, and though I never did feel the temptation to give myself over to it, I did know how best to employ it for my own purposes. When even this statement did not seem sufficient for the most stubborn among them, who still threatened to accompany me, I told them, Go and spread my teachings. By this I meant what I had taught them of farming and clothing themselves and hunting, but, just as with Barton, it would have served me well to be more specific. Indeed, this knowledge did spread, but with it came a ritual of the eating of human flesh throughout the winter months. A ritual I had not encouraged, and had resorted to only in the direst emergency. This they supported, not only with glosses from their Bible, but with words from a new holy book they had written on birch bark, in which I recognized a twisted rendering of my own words. 
It was not until I had been discovered by my former compatriots and imprisoned briefly under suspicion and then returned to my own campsite that I heard any hint of this lamentable practice. It was inquired of me whether I had seen any such things in my travels in the Midwest. Perhaps it was wrong of me to feign ignorance, and I had long returned to my duties, despite the hard questions concerning dog and dog cart and provisions that I had been unable to answer before there were rumors that the practice had begun, like a contagion, to spread, and had even crossed from the Midwest into our own territories. I had indeed lost nearly all sense of my days as a Midwestern Jesus before the authorities discovered my name circulating in Midwestern mouths, inscribed in their holy books. If, when I was again apprehended, I was indeed preparing to flee, and I do not admit to such, it is only because of a fear of becoming a scapegoat, a fear that is in the process of being realized. If I had intended to create this cult around my own figure, why then would I ever have left the Midwest? What purpose would I have had in abandoning a world in which I could have been a god? The insinuations that I have been spreading my own cult in our own territories are spurious. There is absolutely no proof. There is one other thing I shall say in my defense. What takes place beyond the borders of the known world is not to be judged against the standards of this world. Then you may well inquire, what standard of judgment should be applied? I do not know the answer to this question, unless the answer be no standard of judgment at all. I was ordered to write an honest accounting of how I became a Midwestern Jesus, and to the best of my ability I have done so. I regret to say that the conclusion of my task, I now for the first time see my actions in a cold light. I have no faith in the clemency of my judges, nor faith that any regret for the events that I unintentionally set in motion will lead to a pardon. I have no illusions. I shall be executed. Yet I have one last request. After my death, I ask that my body be torn asunder and given in pieces to my followers. Though I remain a heretic, I see no way of bringing my cult to an end otherwise. Let those who want to partake of me partake, and then I will have at least rounded the circle, my skull joining a pile of skulls in the Midwest my bones shattered and sucked free of marrow, and left to bleach upon the plain. And then, if I do not arise from the dead, if I do not appear to them in a garment of white, finger beside, then perhaps it will all end. And if I do arise, stripping the liniments of death away to reveal renewed the raiment of the living, permit me to say, then, that it is already too late for all of you, for I have come not with an olive branch, but with a sword. He smiteth, and when he smiteth, ye shall surely die. And now on to our second story. This delightful story, by Charles Stross, called Snowball's Chance, is set in a Scotland that neither you nor I will ever know. You'll have to adjust your ears a little bit, because our narrator, Kenny Park, does a fantastic job, and every once in a while the accent gets so thick you can cut it with a knife. Charles Stross is 49, he's a full-time science fiction writer, and actually lives in Edinburgh. He's written six Hugo-nominated novels, and he won Hugo Awards in 2005 and 2010 for his novellas. You can have a look at his Antipope website. You can find the link for that, obviously, on our Triple F website. As I mentioned, it is narrated for you by Kenny Park. Kenny Park has this to say about himself. He's a video editor. He's male. He's in his 30s. He has a dog and a cat, but prefers the dog. He's married sneezes a lot, loves pizza, curry, and sometimes Chinese. You can have a look at kennypark.com, which might tell you more. It might. Enjoy the story. It's great. Snowball's Chance by Charles Stross the lowering sky, half-past pregnant with a call of snow, pressed down on Davy's head like a hangover. He glanced up once, shivered, then pushed through the doorway into the deed nurse and the smog of fag fumes within. His sometime conspirator, Tam the tailor, was already at the bar. All right, Davy? Davy drew a deep breath, his glasses steaming up the instant he stepped through the heavy blackout curtain so that the disreputable pub was shrouded in a halo of icy iridescence that concealed its flaws. Mine's a jukers. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. His nostrils flared as he took in the seedy mixture of aromas that festered in the deed nurse's atmosphere. So thick you could cut it with an axe, Morag had said once with a sniff of her lopsided snot siphon, back in the day when she'd had aught to say to Davy. Fucking Baltic out there tonight, and eh, kidding? He slid his glasses off and wiped them off, then looked around tiredly. Tam glanced around as if to be sure the pub population hadn't magically doubled between mouthfuls of seventy bob. Oh, wouldn't they say that? He gestured with his nose, pockmarked by frostbite, at the snug in the corner. Once the storefront for the old town's more affluent ladies of the night, it was now unaccountably popular with the students of the gaming fraternity, possibly because they had been driven out of all the trendier bars in the neighbourhood for yakking to all hours and not drinking enough, much like the whores before them. Right now a bunch of threadbare LARPers were in residence, arguing over some recondite point of lore. They're having enough fun for a barrel of monkeys by the end of it. And who can blame them? Davy hoisted his glass. I just wish they keep their shite off the box. The pub, in an effort to compensate for its lack of a food licence, had installed a huge and dodgy Vauxhall engine that teetered precariously over the bar. It was full of muddy field, six larpers leaping. Then they piss them off, Davy. They've all got swords. Oh, I was just kidding. And didn't he catch my lottery tonight? That's all I'm saying. If you win, it'll be a first, Tam stared at his glass. And what would you do then, if your numbers came up? What, the big gain? Davy put his glass down, then unzipped his Parker's fast-access pouch and pulled out a fag packet and lighter. Condensation immediately beaded the plastic wrapper as he flipped it open. I'd pay off the hoose for starters, and the child support. And then... He paused, eyes wandering to the dog-eared no-smoking sign behind the bar. Ah, shit. He flicked his zippo, stroking the end of a cigarette with the flame from the burning coal oil. If I was young again, I'd move, you can. But I'm no. I've got roots here. The sign went on to warm of lung cancer, curable, and 2,000 euro fines, laughable, even if enforced. Davy inhaled, grateful for the warmth flooding his lungs. And there's Morag in the bairns. Heh. Tam left it at a grunt, for which Davy was grateful. It wasn't that he thought Morag would ever come back to him, but he was sick to the back teeth of people who thought they were his friends, telling him that she wouldn't, not unless he did this or did that. I could pay for the bairns to go east. They're young enough. He glanced at the doorway. It's no right, throwing snowballs in May. That's global warming, Tam shrugged with elaborate irony, then changed the subject. Where'd you think they'd go? The Ukraine? New Beria? Somewhere there's grass and no glaciers? Pause. And real beaches with sand and all. 
He frowned and hastily added, Didn't get me wrong, I ken how likely that is. The collapse of the West Antarctic ice shelf two decades ago had inundated every established coastline. It had also stuck in the last nail of the coffin of the Gulf Stream, plunging the British Isles into a subarctic deep freeze. Then the Americans had made it worse, at least for Scotland, by putting a giant parasol into orbit to stop the rest of the planet roasting like a chicken on a spit. Davy had learned all about global warming in geography classes at school, back when it hadn't happened, in the rare intervals where he wasn't dozing in the back row or staring at Yasmin McConnell's hair. It wasn't until he was already paying a mortgage and the second kid was on the way that what it meant really sank in. Cold. Eternal cold. Deep in your bones. I'd like to see a real beach again, some day before I die. You could save for a train ticket. How away were you? Where'd I go to? Davy snorted, darkly amused. Flying was for the hyper-rich these days. And anyway, the nearest beaches with sand and sun were in the Caliphate, a long day's TGV ride south through the Channel Tunnel and across the Gibraltar Bridge, in what had once been the northern Sahara Desert. As a tourist destination, the Caliphate had certain drawbacks. A lack of topless sunbathing beauties had been only the first on the list. It's just as bad wherever you go. At least here you can still get pork scratchings. Aye, well... Tam raised his glass, just as a stranger appeared in the doorway. And then there's some that didn't feel the cold. Davy turned around to follow the direction of his gaze. The stranger was oddly attired, in a lightweight suit and tie, as if he'd stepped out of the middle of the previous century, although his neat goatee beard and the two small brass horns implanted on his forehead were a more contemporary touch. He noticed Davy staring and nodded, politely enough, then broke eye contact and ambled over to the bar. Davy turned back to Tam, who responded to his wink. Take care now, Davy. You've got my number. With that, he stood up, put his glass down, and shambled unsteadily towards the toilets. This put Davy on his lonesome next to the stranger, who leaned on the bar and glanced at him sideways with an expression of amusement. Davy's forehead wrinkled as he stared in the direction of Katie, the barwoman, who was just now coming back up the cellar steps with an empty coal-powder cartridge in one hand. "'My round?' asked the stranger, raising an eyebrow. "'Aye, mine's a jukers if you're buying.' Davy, while not always quick on the uptake, was never slow on the barrel. If this undressed southerner could afford a heated taxi, he could certainly afford to buy Davy some beer. Katie nodded and rinsed her hands under the sink— However well sealed they left the factory, coal cartridges always leaked, like printer toner had once done, and picked up two glasses. "'New roundabout here?' Davy asked after a moment. The stranger smiled. "'Just passing through. I visit Edinburgh every few years.' "'Aye.' Davy could relate to that. "'And yourself?' "'Amphrey Pelton.' Which was true enough. That was where he'd bought the house with Morag all those years ago, back when folks actually wanted to buy houses in Edinburgh. Back before the pack ice closed the Firth for six months every year. Back before the rising sea level drowned Leith and Ingleston and turned Arthur's seat into a frigid coastal headland, looming grey and stark above the permafrost. Whereabouts did you, Humphrey? The stranger's smile widened as Katie parked a half-litre on the bar top before him and bent down to pull the next. I think you know where I'm from, my friend. Davy snorted. Aye, so you're a man of wealth and taste, is that right? Just so. A moment later, Katie planted the second glass in front of Davy, gave him a brittle smile, and retreated to the opposite end of the bar, without pausing to extract credit from the stranger, who nodded and raised his jar. To your good fortune. Heh. <laughs> Davy chugged back a third of his glass. It was unusually bitter, with a slight sulphurous edge to it. That's a new barrel. Only the best for my friends. Davy sneaked an irritated glance at the stranger. Right. I ken you want to talk. You don't need to take the pish. I'm sorry. The stranger held his gaze, looking slightly perplexed. It's just that I've spent too long in America recently. Most of them believe in me. A bit of good old-fashioned scepticism is refreshing once in a while. 
Davy snorted. Do I look like a god botherer to you? You're among civilised folk here. Nay free-cut numpties would show their noses in a pub. So I see. The stranger relaxed slightly. Seen more ag in the boys lately, have you? Now a strange thing happened. Because as the cold fury took him, and a monstrous roaring filled his ears, and he reached for the stranger's throat, he seemed to hear Morag's voice shouting, Davy, don't! And to his surprise, a moment of timely sanity came crashing down on him, a sense that, devil or no, if he laid hands on this fucker, he really would be damned somehow. It might just have been the hypothalamic implant that the sheriff had added to his list of parole requirements, working its arcane magic on his brain chemistry. But it certainly felt like a drenching, cold sweat, sense of imminence, and not in a good way. So as the raging impulse to glass the cunt died away, Davy found himself contemplating his own raised fists in perplexity, the crude blue tattoos of love and hate standing out in his knuckles like doorposts framing the prison gateway of his life. "'Who tell you about them?' he demanded hoarsely. "'Cigarette?' The stranger, who had sat perfectly still while Davy wound up to punch his ticket, raised the chiselled eyebrow again. "'Ya bass!' But Davy's hand went to his pocket automatically, and he found himself passing a filter tip to the stranger rather than ramming a red-hot ember in his eye. Thank you. The stranger took the unlit cigarette, put it between his lips, and inhaled deeply. Nobody needed to tell me about them, he continued, slowly dribbling smoke from both nostrils. Davy slumped defensively in his bar stool. When you was asking about Morag and the Bairns, I figured you was fucking with my head. But knowing that there was a perfectly reasonable, supernatural explanation somehow made it all right. You can't blame old Nick for pushing your buttons. Davy reached out for his glass again. Excuse me, I, did, I didn't think he existed. Feel free to take your time. The stranger smiled faintly. I find atheists refreshing, but it does take a little longer than usual to get down to business. I will. Conceding for the moment that you are the devil, I don't ken what you want with the likes of me. Davy cradled his beer protectively. I'm nabdy. He shivered in a sudden draught as one of the students, leaving, pushed through the curtain, admitting a flurry of late May snowflakes. So? <laughs> you may be nobody, but your lucky number just came up. The stranger smiled devilishly. Did you never think you'd win the lottery? Aye, well, if half the stories they tell about you are true, I'd rather it was the ticket, you can. Or are you going to say you've been stitched up by the kirk? Something like that. The devil nodded sagely. Look, you're not stupid, so I'm not going to bullshit you. What it is, I'm not the only one of me working this circuit. I've got a quota to meet, but there aren't enough politicians and captains of industry to go around. And anyway, they're boring. All they ever want is money, power, or good, hot, kinky sex without any comebacks from their constituents. Poor folks are so much more creative in their desperation, don't you think? And so much more likely to believe in the rules, too. The rules? Davy found himself staring at his companion in perplexity. Neither law, right? <laughs> Do as thou wilt shall be all of the law, quoth the devil. Then he paused, as if he tasted something unpleasant. You were saying? Love is the law. Love under will, the devil added, dyspeptically. That's all? Davy stared at him. My employer requires me to quote chapter and verse when challenged. As he said, employer, the expression in the devil's face made Davy shudder. And she monitors these conversations for compliance. But what about the rest of it, eh? If you're the devil, what about the Ten Commandments? Oh, those are just rules, said the devil, smiling. I'm really proud of them. You made them all up. Davy said accusingly. Just to fuck with us. Oh, yes. Of course I did. And all the other rules. They work really well, don't you think? 
Daisy made a fist and stared at the back of it. Love. You cunt. I still didn't believe in you. The devil shrugged. Nobody's asking you to believe in me. You don't, and I'm still here, aren't I? If it makes things easier, think of me as the garbage collection subroutine of the strong anthropic principle. And they... He stabbed a finger in the direction of the overhead LEDs. Work by magic, for all you know. Davy picked up his glass and drained it philosophically. The hell of it was, the devil was right. Now that he thought about it, he had no idea how the lights worked, except that electricity had something to do with it. I'll have another. You're buying? No, I'm not. The devil snapped his fingers, and two full glasses appeared in the bar, steaming slightly. Davy picked up the nearest one. It was hot to the touch, even though the beer inside it was at cellar temperature, and it smelled slightly sulphurous. Anyway, I owe you. What for? Davy sniffed the beer suspiciously. This smells pish. He pushed it away. What is it you owe me for? For taking that mortgage, and the job on the street cleaning team, and for pissing it all down the drain, and fucking off a thousand citizens in little ways. For giving me Jamie and wee Davy, and for wrecking your life and cutting Morag off from her parents, and raising a pair of Neds instead of two fine, upstanding citizens. You're not a scholar, and you're not a gentleman, but you're a truly professional hater. And as for what you did to Morag... Davy made another fist. Hate. Say one mere word about Morag, he warned. The devil chuckled quietly. No, you managed to do all that by yourself. He shrugged. I'd have offered to help if you needed it, but you seem to be doing okay without me. Like I said, you're a professional. He cleared his throat. Which brings me to the little matter of why I'm talking to you tonight. I'm no for sale. Davy crossed his arms defensively. Who do you think I am? The devil shook his head, still smiling. I'm not here to make you an offer for your soul. That's not how things work. Anyway, you gave it to me of your own free will years ago. Davy looked into his eyes. The smile didn't reach them. Trouble is, there are consequences when that happens. My employer is an optimist. She's not an Augustinian entity, you'll be pleased to learn. She doesn't believe in original sin. So things between you and the ultimate are, let's just say they're out of balance. It's like a credit card bill. The longer you ignore it, the worse it gets. You cut me a karmic loan from the first bank of Davy MacDonald, and the law requires me to repay it with interest. Huh? Davy stared at the devil. You what? The devil wasn't smiling now. You're one of the elect, Davy. One of the unconditionally elect. So it's fucking everyone else these days, but your name came up in the quality assurance lottery. I'm not allowed to mess with you. If you die and I'm in your debt, seven shades of shit hit the fan. So I owe you a fucking wish. The devil tapped his fingers impatiently on the bar top. He was no longer smiling. You get one wish. I'm required to read you the small print. <clears throat> the party of the first part, in cognizance of the gift, benefits or loan bestowed by the party of the second part, is hereby required to tender the fulfillment of one, brackets, O-N-E, verbally or somatically expressed indication of desire by the party of the second part, in pursuance of the discharge of the said gift, benefits or loan. Said fulfillment here enough to be termed the wish. The party of the first part undertakes to bring the totality of existence into accordance with the terms of the wish exclusive of paradox, deici, temporal inversion, or other willful suspension contrary to the laws of nature. The party of the second part recognizes, understands, and accepts that this wish represents full and final discharge of debt incurred by the gift benefice or loan to the party of the first part. Notwithstanding additional grants of rights incurred under the terms of this contract, the rights, responsibilities, duties of the party of the first part to the party of the second part are subject to the consumer credit regulations of 2026. Davy shook his head. I don't get it. Are you telling me you're giving me a wish? In return for 
for being a rag all my life? The devil nodded. Yes. Davy winced. I think I need another jukers. Fuck, hold on, that isn't even my wish. He stared at the devil anxiously. You're serious, aren't you? The devil sniffed. I can't discharge the obligation with a beer. My employer isn't stupid, whatever her other faults. She'd say I was shortchanging you, and she'd be right. It's got to be a big wish, Davy. Davy's expression brightened. The devil waved a hand at Katie. Another jukers for my friend here, and a drop of the crater. Things were looking up, Davy decided. Can you make Moragne have... I mean, can you make things... All right again. Nay went bad. He dry-swallowed, mind skittering like a frightened spider away from what he was asking for. Not to have... Whatever. Whatever he'd done. Already. The devil contemplated Davy for a long handful of seconds. No. He said patiently. That would create a paradox, you see. Because if things hadn't gone bad for you, I wouldn't be here giving you this wish, would I? Your life gone wrong is the fuel for this miracle. Oh. Davy waited in silence while Katie pulled the pint, then retreated back to the far end of the bar. Where's Tom? He wondered vaguely. Fucking Dale, with all his smart suit and high hygiene manners. He shivered, unaccountably cold. Am I going to hell? He asked roughly. Is that where I'm going? Sorry, but no. We were brought in to run this universe, but we didn't design it. When you're dead, that's it. No hellfire, no damnation. The worst thing that can happen to you is you're reincarnated, given a second chance to get things right. It's normally my job to give people like you that chance. And if I'm not reincarnated? Davy asked hopefully. You get to wake up in the mind of God. Of course, you stop being you when you do that. The devil frowned thoughtfully. Come to think of it, you'd probably give her a migraine. Right, right, Davy nodded. The devil was giving him a headache. He had a dawning suspicion that this one wasn't a prod or a pape. He probably supported Livingston. I'm no that bad, then, is what you're saying. Don't get above yourself. The devil's frown deepened, oblivious to the stroke of killing rage that flashed behind Davy's eyes at the words... Didn't he get above your cell? Who the fuck do you think you are? The sheriff? That was almost exactly what the sheriff had said, leaning over to pronounce sentence. You can, I'm nobody. Didn't he deny it? Davy's fists tightened, itching to hit somebody. The story of his life, being ripped off and then talked down to by self-satisfied cunts. I'll make you regret it. The devil continued after a moment. You've got to really fuck up in a theological manner before she won't take you these days. Spreading hatred in the name of God, that kind of thing will do for you. Trademark abuse, she calls it. You're plenty bad, but you're not that bad. Don't kid yourself. You only warrant special visit because you're a quality sample. The rest are unobserved. So I'm no evil. I'm just plain bad. Davy grinned virulently as a thought struck him. Let's do something about that. Karmic imbalance. I'll show you a karmic imbalance. Can you do something about the weather? I hate the cold. He tried to put a whine in his voice. The change in the weather had crippled house prices, shafted him in Morag. It would serve the devil right if he fell for it. I can't change the weather. The devil shook his head, looking slightly worried. Like I said... Can you fuck with your own sunshield, the fucking yank stuck in the sky? Davy leaned forward, glaring at him. Cause if no, what kind of devil are you? You want me to what? Davy took a deep breath. He remembered what it had looked like on TV twenty years ago. The great silver reflectors unfolding in solar orbit, the jubilant politicians, the graphs showing a twenty percent fall in sunlight reaching the earth. The savage April blizzards that didn't stop for a month, the endless twilight, and the sun dim enough to look at. And now the devil wanted to give him a wish, in payment for fucking things up for a few thousand bastards who had it coming. Davy felt his lips drawing back from his teeth, a feral smile forcing itself to the surface. I want you to fuck up the sunshade, all right? Get onto it. 
I want it to be warm. The devil shook his head. That's a new one on me, he admitted. But, he frowned. You're sure? No second thoughts? You want to waive your mandatory fourteen-day right of cancellation? Aye. Date the new. Davy nodded vigorously. It's done. The devil smiled faintly. What? Davy stared. There's not much to it. A rock, about the size of this pub, travelling on a cometary orbit. It'll take an hour or so to fold, but I already took care of that. The devil's smile widened. You used your wish. I didn't believe you, said Davy, hopping down from his barstool. Out of the corner of one eye he saw Tam dodging through the blackout curtain in the doorway, tipping him the wink. This had gone on long enough. You'll have to prove it. Show me. What? The devil looked puzzled. But I told you it'll take about an hour. So you say. And what then? Well, the parasol collapses, so the amount of sunlight goes up, it gets brighter, the snow melts. Is that right? Davy grinned. So how many wishes do I get this time? How many? The devil froze. What makes you think you get any more? He snarled, his face contorting. Like you said, I gave you a loan, didn't I? Davy's grin widened. He gestured towards the door. After you? You... The devil paused. You, you don't mean... He swallowed, then continued quietly. That was deliberate, was it? Oh, aye. Davy could see it in his mind's eye. The wilting crops and blazing forests, droughts and heat stroke and mass extinction, the despairing millions across America and Africa, exotic places he'd never seen, never been allowed to go, roasting like pieces of a turkey on a spit, roasting in revenge for twenty years, frozen in outer darkness, hell on earth. Four billion fuckers, isn't he that enough for another? Son of a bitch! The devil reached into his jacket pocket and pulled out an antique calculator, began punching buttons. Forty-eight, no, forty-nine. Shit, this has never happened before. You bastard, don't you have a conscience? Davy thought for a second. No. Fuck! It was now or never. I'll take a note. A credit? Shit. Okay, then, here. The devil handed over his mobile. It was small and very black and shiny, and it buzzed like a swarm of flies. Listen, I've got to go now. I need to escalate this to senior management. Call head office tomorrow. If I'm not there, one of my staff will talk you through the state of your claim. Oh, I'll be sure to do that. The devil stalked towards the curtain and stepped through into the darkness beyond, and was gone. Davy pulled out his moby and speed-dialed a number. He's all yours now, he muttered into the handset, then hung up and turned back to his beer. A couple of minutes later, someone came in and sat down next to him. Davy raised a hand and waved vaguely at Katie. A juker's for Tam here. Katie nodded nonchalantly. She seemed to have cheered up since the devil had stepped out and picked up a glass. Tam dropped a couple of small brass horns in the bar top next to Davy. Davy stared at them for a moment, then glanced up, admiringly. Neat, he admitted. Get anything else off him. No, the cunt was crap. He didn't even have a moby, just these. Tam looked disgusted for a moment. I pulled my chib, waved it around, and he totally legged it. Thinking anybody will come looking for us? Nay chance. Davy raised his glass, then tapped the pocket with the devil's mobile phone in it smugly. Nay a snowball's chance in hell. So, everyone, that was our show for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, it's been a pleasure to spend time with you. I hope you will join us next week. Sit back, relax, put your feet up, get a drink, and listen to some fantastic stories. Until then, bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. 
You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.